we have to get smarter about our black swan planning. Like what else could happen and why? Because companies are being caught off guard. So to some degree, this organization may be able to pull people together to be pretty creative about what could happen and whose job is it to try to solve it. Uh, both You're listening to Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm Nick, your host, and in today's episode, we speak with Sandra Pupatello and Tony Clement. Tony, a former cabinet minister in both the federal and provincial levels, and was actually the health minister for Ontario during the SARS outbreak, which, for those of us who can remember it, kind of feels like the G-rated prequel to what's happening now. And Sandra Pupatello, the former economic development minister in Ontario, the ministry that we are reporting to. Both of our guests have a long history in politics, but from opposite sides of the aisle. In their retirement, they've put their differences aside to work on something called reshoring Canada. But more on that in a minute. As I record this introduction, the COVID-19 numbers in Ontario are at the lowest they've been since the outset of the pandemic. And Ontarians can't wait to open things up again. I count myself among these people. The end is in sight, and oh, I can't wait. None of us can wait. It's patios and, and handshakes. Remember remember hugs? Weren't hugs great? Let's, yeah, let's, I, we're all, yeah, we want to open things up. I, I'm sure we're all ready to put this chapter in our lives to bed and move on. I get that instinct. I get how we all want to go back to normal. But the fact is, if we want to be smart about moving forward, then there's no real going back. See, that old normal contributed to the chaos we experienced in the opening months of the pandemic. And we must learn and remember the lessons that experience taught us. Remember the shortage of face masks? Remember the shortage of nitrile gloves? Remember the fear of not having enough ventilators? How about the fact that we're dependent on the outside world for vaccines? That was normal. It still kind of is. In her convocation speech as valedictorian, Trillium's own Talissa Watson said to her graduating class, quote, I encourage us all to dream of a better future, a better normal, end quote. And I couldn't agree more. We need a new normal. We need a better normal. One where Ontario is better prepared to face challenges like COVID-19 and also better prepared to face challenges that, that we can't predict yet. What happens if climate change decides to alter some facet of our lives that we can't foresee today? Will we be able to build the solutions that will suit our needs? Or will we be happy to wait on our global suppliers? This is why the efforts of reshoring Canada are so important. They're doing what countless political and other leaders have been talking about for years. They're trying to bring manufacturing back to Canada by reshoring our supply chains. But they're not just doing it with good intentions and smiles. This isn't a basic feel-good-bye Canadian campaign. No, no, no. They're starting with Trillium's favorite thing in the whole wide world. They're starting with data. They're looking for data on what the actual costs will be to accomplish this. So if you're listening to me say these words and you're a Canadian manufacturer, please go to our website's blog post about this podcast and click on the link to the survey. Sandra and Tony need your data because they are looking to set baselines for the calculations of... Okay, I don't exactly know how they're going to examine the data because I'm not a stats person, but I know they're looking for information on inputs versus outputs. How much is it costing you to build things here? If you manufacture in Ontario and Canada, go fill out the survey. And if you have questions about how this project will move forward, please reach out to us. Reach out to Tony. Reach out to Sandra. Reach out to Brendan. We're all incredibly accessible, I promise. Especially if you think you can help us get the word out. Anyway. Enough for me. Here's Tony Clement and Sandra Pupatello, former political adversaries, now allies in reshoring Canada, discussing how they're going to help all of us continue making it in Ontario. And with that, we're live again. And we are doing another virtual podcast series. And of all of the ones that we've done so far virtually, this is the one that I am most disappointed that we're actually not all in the same room. Because I am being joined... Well, I'm first I'm being joined by Dr. Brendan Sweeney. Hello, Brendan. Good to see you again. Happy Friday. Happy summer. Yep. And then we're also being joined by Tony Clement. 
and Sandra Pupatello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Hello to both of you. So this this is a great, uh, I'm going to start with uh, talking a little bit about Sandra because, well, just before we turn the mics on, she had to do a little bit of an, of, of, a little bit of embarrassing me just because, uh, you know, when she first met me, I didn't have any gray in my beard or a beard. And now I have both. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> or a mustache. Oh. Yeah, that was a while ago. And then, yeah. now, Tony, tell us, uh, as I understand, we're here today to talk about reshoring Canada, and that has nothing to do with cleaning up beaches. No. Um, we're actually, we're doing a, it's, it's a much more involved uh, project. It really piqued our interest because we kind of, we kind of came across it almost by accident. Uh, and, uh, you know, as the communications guy, I really should have been a little more proactive on that, but I'm glad we're here now. Um, Tony, uh, correct me if I'm, uh, th this was your brainchild? Yeah, it's, uh, listen, uh, first of all, uh, a, a brief definition, Reshoring Canada is an advocacy and information organization dedicated to greater resiliency of Canada's supply chains, and we'll, we'll unpack that as we go along. But uh, the, the story starts uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, i.e. pre-COVID, when I had just exited from the uh, House of Commons of Canada as an MP. Uh, as your listeners may know, I was a former industry minister, former health minister, former treasury board president, etc. And before that, I had a, a career in Ontario provincial politics where Sandra and I dueled uh, on opposite sides of the Ontario legislature, but uh, nonetheless uh, had a pretty good friendship uh, and respect for one another. But after I exited from parliament, uh, I was busy building my entrepreneurial life. Uh, and involved in several startups, et cetera. Um, but one of the projects I was very interested in was what is called critical minerals, sometimes called rare earth elements, but I'll use the, uh, the first uh, nomenclature for, for the purposes of this discussion. And critical minerals are, are rare earth minerals uh, that are in high demand uh, and are, as I say, used in everything from fighter jets to uh, electric vehicle batteries. And um, lo and behold, uh, this has become a very strategic and geopolitical, uh, non-lethal, but nonetheless important war that is going on right now across the global economy to gain control of the supply chain of critical minerals because they are used on such important aspects. If you want to be involved in your own national defense, you need critical minerals. If you want to be involved in green tech and clean tech, uh, you've got to have critical minerals. And, and Canada has a pretty good supply of those uh, in the ground. Uh, the, the challenge was or is that uh, the People's Republic of China controls about 70% of the supply chain of worldwide critical minerals. They have their latest five-year plan of the Communist Party of China has indicated that they, they wanna be the world leader in green tech on, on electric vehicles and batteries and solar panels. Uh, and so they wanted to get the supply chain, all, all belts and roads leading to China as I, as I want to say. So uh, I was involved with a group that was intent on a Canadian answer to that to make sure that our companies, our mining companies, our natural resource extraction related companies were had a supply chain that was available to frankly North American needs and interests for our auto sector and, and uh, our uh, green tech sector and so on. So I was working on that. And then kablooey, the pandemic hit and uh, what happened at the, at the start of the pandemic, everybody was scrambling around trying to find PPE and holy smokes, you know, 90% or more of the supply chain of PPE at the time was uh, China controlled. It was a cheap place to manufacture uh, personal protective equipment, ma masks, gloves, gowns, et cetera, ventilators. Uh, and uh, there was a mad scramble. It was like the wild west to try to get access to that supply chain. Dreamers and schemers had plane loads of PPE at Shanghai airport. And, oh, that had been sold to someone else underneath the nose of the Canadian supplier. I mean, it was just a mess. And uh, I think uh, politicians and, uh, uh, you know, uh, experts and, uh, 
and uh, doctors, nurses all wanted PPE that was had a better supply chain than what was offered to Canada because of the shortages. So it just um, really, uh, really made it clear to me that there was a, a, a broad issue here. It wasn't just about critical minerals. It wasn't just about PPE. It was about manufacturing in general. Uh, you know, and uh, meanwhile, the semiconductor shortage was happening as well. And uh, Sandra can tell you a little bit about that because I know she studied that. Uh, suffice it to say, I thought, you know, now is the time to have an organization uh, that uh, provides information and ultimately provides advocacy for a better supply chain for Canada. And let me tell you now what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we're a nativist organization, make Canada great again, uh, you know, buy Canada, 100% Canada. That's, that's kind of impossible in today's day and age. But it does mean that we do have to consider national security, health and safety of our citizens, uh, better results in terms of jobs and opportunity for Canadians. And there may be ways that the supply chain can be re reconfigured to meet those goals. And so Reshoring Canada was built on that. I wanted it to be a nonpartisan uh, organization. It's not just about me as a former conservative industry minister. And I had uh, had uh, dealings with Sandra on my, uh, on my television show where she's a regular guest. And I thought, you know... Uh, I had a lot of respect for Sandra when we were in the legislature together, and I had a lot of respect for her views and opinions. And so we connected on this. We decided that we were going to co-chair it together. Uh, and uh, Sandra, of course, being the brilliant person that she is, uh, said, you know, before we go out on, the, on a limb, we, we, yes, let's launch the organization, you know, build it and they will come. But before we go out there advocating stuff, we've got to have a baseline of information. Uh, we can't just sort of do it off the top of our heads. And now I'm going to pass the baton to Sandra Pupatello, who's going to talk a little bit about one of the first projects of reshoring Canada, which is the baseline of information. Well, thanks, Tony. Uh, you're giving our uh, our hosts here a really easy job today on this podcast, so, which is great. Um, but anyway, my name is Sandra, and just my own uh, credibility on this issue. Uh, while Tony was the Minister of Industry for Canada, I was his cohort in Ontario as Ontario's Industry Minister. Uh, and I had the honour of being that minister during the recession in Canada. So there's no better time to get to know industry and how our companies have to suffer and then survive. Uh, like going through a recession with them. And uh, we were pretty creative back then. And Tony and I actually worked together on the bailout for Chrysler, the bailout for GM. Uh, and the very reason we still have manufacturing in Southern Ontario is because of those bailouts, because we saved a ton of the, of the supply chain uh, for automotive, which was more of my uh, interest, frankly, even than the OEs, because the OEs, as you know, their, their first line of thinking is not Canada. Uh, but that isn't the case at the supply chain level. We have a lot of supply in automotive uh, and general manufacturing, and that's a livelihood for Ontario. It's our number one industry. So um, doing this to me was a natural. What I realized quickly was there's a lot of stuff that I don't follow in different sectors, in different industries that are all suffering the same fate, not necessarily because of the pandemic, but that the pandemic exacerbated or really shone a light on issues that had been there bubbling under the surface and now all of a sudden they became extreme. So when Tony and I started talking about this, it really seemed like that natural progression that we should look at a body whose exclusive purpose is to look at the solutions to what for a whole host of reasons has happened to our supply chain. Uh, and Tony's right. We can't be um, all adjust Canada and just build in Canada because that would, we, we would have no credibility if that was the case. We're a trading nation. Both of us have been involved in trading missions around the world to sell Canada and Canadian companies. So I'm all for international trade, very much so. Uh, but I also recognize that one little company in Oldcastle in my backyard here in Windsor, uh, they can't solve some of these supply chains by themselves. They can't solve some of these issues. So it becomes the industry's interest, uh, maybe the government's interest, their industry association's interest to do something that one little company just can't manage. And that's where I think it's important that we have this group that Tony referenced how 
all of a sudden, like, I could not believe the response we got and nor were we ready <laughs> for that response because they were coming out of the woodwork of finding us through social platforms, frankly, the social media platforms to talk to us. I want to join. I want to help. Uh, they, we sent them to the website. They signed up. We've got well, I don't I can't even tell you the number, but hundreds of people responded through the people that some that Tony know, some that I know. And really quickly, we put this group together that is pretty reflective of the nation of different sectors, and their interest level is pretty high. So so we were impressed and knew we were onto something that is that, that seems really necessary right now. We're also clear not to reinvent the wheel. So when we're talking to other organizations, we're asking them to be a part of us because we don't need to do it over again. They already have that expertise. So that, that's really important to note as well. Um, and when Tony said our first big step was this data, um, best way to be credible is to know what you're talking about that goes beyond just the anecdotal story that you're reading about in the Globe or, or, or the national papers. Um, and that's why we went forward with building the survey. We're delighted that uh, Main Street Research is supporting us. They actually helped us build the survey. And we are now getting links out, unique links, for each industry association that's helping get their membership to participate in our survey. And those surveys are now starting to trickle in. We've got, uh, you know, the big national groups involved, like the CME, the Quebec CME, APMA for automotive, um, the uh, Business Council's interest, the Chamber of Ca Chamber of Commerce of Canada's interested, uh, and then CTMA, the the, the uh, tool mold machine, uh, CAMM, the Canadian Association of Mold Makers, Automate Canada, which cuts right across the Supply Chain Association of Canada, seven thousand members of supply chain experts across a number of uh, of sectors. Tony, I probably missed a whole bunch of organizations, but they all now are getting their unique links. And now we're starting to see some response. We are asking them questions like, well, who are you? Um, they can be anonymous because some people aren't comfortable with uh, giving us information that could be competitive. So we don't need to know their name of company, but their sector. And then we start asking questions about what has their experience been over the last year or two around supply chain interruption? Is it resource-based? Is it raw material-based? Is it, is it transportation? Is it regulation? Uh, you, you know, those we're really cutting a wide swath and we don't have any data to look at at this moment because it's all coming in. But so far, our pollster, uh, Keto Maggi, has said that the data that's coming in is very rich. People are really taking time to give us a lot of detail when we say, you know, you get the opportunity in the box to give us more info. And I guess they're really, uh, they're flooding our, our system, which is a great sign that we're going to have really good data. So it sounds like you guys have hit a note or hit a nerve with industry. Now, I'm sure Brendan is probably going to have a few technically related questions, but I want to make the stuff that we're talking about here as accessible as possible. So Tony, Sandra, I'm not sure who would be best suited to answer this, but how did we get here? Like to the point where we need to reshore, how did, like, what happened? If you could, as concisely as you can possibly answer that. Well, well uh, I, yeah, you take it. You take the first stab at that, Tony. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And, and uh, certainly uh, it's an important question. Uh, I think, we went through a period, the globe went through a period uh, of globalization, and uh, there was, uh, there was uh, a trend in business, probably started by Toyota, just-in-time delivery was uh, pioneered by them. Uh, it became very effective, very efficient. It, uh, it led the way to the idea that if you, you didn't have to stockpile a whole bunch of parts and machinery uh, in a very expensive warehouse, uh, and you could just reorder what you needed on the day that you needed it, and wow, it would show up. And so just-in-time delivery became the, the way that manufacturing was done around the world, and um, the, the prices were compressed even further with the, obviously, the rise uh, first of Japan, then of China, and uh, related, the other five tigers, you've got South Korea, you've got Taiwan, uh, Vietnam, and so on. 
And so you've got places that became the manufacturing hubs of the world with, um, you know, let's face it, uh, their, their labor costs were a lot lower per unit or per hour. And um, the, the world could uh, bear these extended supply chains uh, that started in Asia and, uh, and then ended up in North America and, and in Europe. And so that became the norm. Uh, and uh, we saw throughout the 90s, uh, uh, you know, Canada, you know, I think of Hamilton, I think of Windsor, uh, I think of uh, the Rust Belt states in the U.S., Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, shedded all these manufacturing jobs uh, because uh, they could not be competitive with the, the low wage rates around the world. So that became the norm. And um, uh, there were voices expressing concern, uh, union, uh, union leaders, labor leaders, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, certain politicians uh, that were, were not listened to really. Uh, and I can understand why they wouldn't be, because if, if you combine that with, uh, you know, uh, you know, we don't want those, uh, those terrible foreigners to, to do this or that, it becomes a very nativist uh, platform. But the reality is uh, there are costs to supply chains over which you have little or no control. And uh, there is starting to be an understanding, uh, and this, this goes across party lines, it's not partisan, a view that, it, you know, that not everything has to be justified by this uh, worldwide supply chain. And uh, I think that uh, if we also review things in terms of an environmental perspective, we also come to different conclusions. There is a cost that maybe it's an externalized cost to the environment of having these long supply chains, uh, which uh, are not particularly green, uh, either in where they're manufactured or how they are transported, that uh, can be improved upon if you look at it from an environmental as well as a manufacturing perspective. And so we're, we're doing research with uh, a group out of the United States, the Reshoring Initiative, that looks at the total cost of production, including the environmental costs, and come to very different conclusions about what an appropriate supply chain should be. I don't know, Sandra, if you want to add anything. Well, I, I just think that for us that, uh, you know, if we if we remember back in the day, uh, my dad worked at Kelsey Hayes uh, when, when he... Uh, when he wasn't a carpenter and he was working at Kelsey Hayes, let me say that. Uh, and he was make they had steel in their tire. They, they used to make the steel wells for the tires. And knowing what happened in the 80s with Kelsey Hayes, uh, which is they just they just closed up shop after taking government money and all this kind of stuff. And it was really my awakening of what the heck are we doing in terms of government policy as it relates to manufacturing. So my interest there goes way back to the 80s, well before I was ever elected. But it also was an in like it was that forerunner to massive change in manufacturing and that shipping ship, shipping offshore of a lot of that work that was our bread and butter for so long. Um, you know, everyone's going to argue that it isn't Asia, it isn't these other countries, it's actually automation, which may be true. And even if it's 50% true, we still have big change going on, which is some work is always coming offshore. And a business case is very difficult to make a business case to reshore truly in back into our boundaries. And if we expect businesses to make money, then they have to be considerate of that. Um, so yeah, we've noticed all those changes in, in how we make parts and what parts we make and, and et cetera. But what the pandemic did was throw a wrench in. I mean, you can't say that the Suez Canal was blocked up because of the pandemic, but it might have been climate change that's costing these, you know, enormous storms that created massive sandbars um, that stopped up that ship for all those days. So yeah, it's probably climate change. Um, and if climate change has has somehow impacted the human condition uh, such that a, a pandemic would really become a pandemic, who knows what that link will be? All I know is this stuff that used to happen every so often is now happening every year uh, to manufacturers anyway. If it's a computer chip, there was a shortage going on, but it was exacerbated by the pandemic when all of a sudden sales of electronics went through the roof because everyone was staying home. So when the, the OEs in automotive decided not to, like, not to open plants, like they shut down their plants, these guys, what were they going to do with their supplies? So they took an, uh, an avid customer in electronics, uh, took what would otherwise be going to the automotive sector. 
And then they realize, hey, I think I'm making more money over there. Maybe I should stick there. So there's a lot behind how we are now in my own backyard and my Chrysler plant in Windsor is shut down again now till the end of the month or, or even into July because of a little chip. A year ago, nobody would have thought that was happening. So we have to get smarter about our black swan planning. Like what else could happen and why? Uh, because companies are being caught off guard um, because the black swan is is out of this world. It, it is nothing we've experienced before. So to some degree, this organization may be able to pull people together to be pretty creative about what could happen and whose job is it to try to solve it. Because uh, both of us, Tony and I, agreed from the outset that it is not all government's issue. Uh, and the answers are not all coming from government. Uh, so every one of us, every other sector or pillar of society had better be part of this discussion uh, because government can't fix all this. It is truly a global international phenomena of businesses that are dealing with this the world over. Uh, some derivative of what we face is being faced uh, by everyone. So that's that's fantastic information. And, and this might be the point where I might have to defer to some of Brendan's knowledge. Um, Politicians have been talking about this issue, talking about this issue for quite some time. You know, we got to bring manufacturing back here, bring many. It's been chatted about for a long time. The thing that caught my ear was the fact that Reshoring Canada is talking about solutions. You're talking about moving the needle. Um, let, let's talk about some of those solutions and how those are different than some of the rhetoric that has been chatted about in the past. Yeah, I think we want to be solutions-based. We want to be uh, able to influence public policy, but also, uh, as Sandra mentioned, this is not just about government actors. I think it's also about businesses and uh, other organizations uh, like uh, like your own and uh, like other organizations that we're having discussions with. We, we've had very fruitful discussions with uh, Ontario's representatives in the United States, for example, and the Quebec representative, in the United States as well, uh, because they've been working on their own uh, initiatives uh, to advance the cause of North American supply chain. Uh, that was, we determined, you know, interesting for us as well, uh, not necessarily antithetical to what we're, we're saying. So I, I think there's a general understanding. Uh, by the way, I, I should have mentioned this at the outset, but you know, I didn't know, and Sandra didn't know what sort of reaction we'd get when we made the big trumpet fanfare announcement about, hey, reshoring Canada exists. How do we exist? Well, we've got a website, uh, you know, and, and we got uh, Christian Paradis uh, signed on as, uh, as the co-chair of our advisory board. He was my successor as Canada's industry minister and uh, uh, gave us uh, a little bit of an insight into Quebec, uh, of course. Um, but the reaction was overwhelmingly positive that uh, the most common reaction we got was, it's about time. It's about time someone was taking this seriously. It's about time that somebody was advancing these goals, uh, you know, that Sandra and I had a, had a modicum of credibility. So they were happy about that, that it was being done by serious people who had serious political careers and now had business careers. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that all of that uh, indicates that we are for pragmatic, uh, common sense solutions, that this is about carrying on the dialogue. We're, we're, Sandra and I are talking about, you know, a series of webinars and other, other events to, to keep people discussing these ideas and come to uh, common sense, practical solutions. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, Nick, your, your point is well taken, and, and that's the direction we're going. Yeah, I just I want to echo that because uh, everyone is really good at figuring out what the problem is. <laughs> so we can all describe that easily. Oh, my God, it's happening to me. It's happening to our sector. It's very difficult to move to the next step. Uh, interestingly, the pandemic the world over has really shown the light on the importance of government in our lives. So whether we like it or not, uh, whether you think you're socialist or heavy conservative, whatever, um, government is important when there's a crisis, for sure. Uh, but at some point, we've got to get weaned off that and realize that, okay, we got to get back to work here. The pandemic, we hope, is waning. And now we got to look at these new realities that, and what we've learned. We think that between 
between our, I don't want to call it a Rolodex because that's very 1970s, but anyway, it's all in our <laughs> smartphone now. Uh, but we have enough reach to put the right people at the table for a solution. And I'm pretty convinced of that. They, we get the right people around the table. We're going to solve these things. And it's going to be the kind of solution that I don't want to use like my old castle company here or that one in Brantford or wherever they, they by themselves are not going to soil a completely new logistical pattern to get their product here in a safe, consistent manner. But we collectively can do that. Uh, I was on the phone with a fellow in Florida that got linked up by our Canadian consulate in Miami Dodd because they heard about what we were doing and wanted to chat about it. And he started rhyming off the things that he's aware of in the South American countries that they produce that we're not even aware of in North America. So some of our debate and discussion could well be where else can we get the products we need for our supply chain? It wouldn't occur to us to go looking because we have consistently gone down this road historically, but actually this one could open up and that could be an opportunity for Canada in new trade agreements or focus on this one or join that one um, because South America is very well linked up and Mexico certainly is more so. Mexico actually has the most number of international trade agreements of North American countries. So uh, they've, they've cottoned on to want to be a part of the North and the South, uh, certainly more than Canada and the U.S. has. So there could be opportunities for us that ultimately long-term solutions are governmental. Uh, short-term could be industry associations that make the connections for their member companies. Um, so I don't want to prejudge how smart this group is going to be, but I suspect that it, thankfully at Trillium, your group has offered to help. Uh, and I know you guys have reached in the sector. Um, so, uh, you know, and Brendan, you may want to talk about the concept, how you go from problem to solution and the part that you can play in this. Yeah. My favorite part about going, or, or how do we go from the problem to the solution is we find someone, even if it's just a very small or very early solution, we go find someone who's created a solution uh, or who's embarked on a solution and, uh, and see and learn from, learn from that um, and learn where else we can apply that, where we can't apply it, where we need a different solution. And I think this is kind of where we get 90% of our, uh, of our application, where we can apply that in a modified way. Data, Sandra, as you mentioned, I mean, you've got to start with that. And you've got to, if we're going to find this solution, it, it's possible that it will, this, that, that the solution provider will reach out and slap us in the face with the solution. It's improbable that they will. So we've got to use the data to, to lead us to potential solutions. And I think, um, you know, Nick and I have a, a lot of conversations around this of using data to, uh, you know, in our daily work, using data to inform narrative. In this case, I think where we can all get together is uh, to use data to identify solutions and inform other solutions. One question, uh, we, we've identified there is a role for government and it's not absolute. There is a role for industry, for the private sector, and it's not absolute. There's got to be, and there, there's a role for all sorts of uh, well-meaning and like-minded associations. Mm. What about the consumer? How do we, and this is, um, this is, you know, the consumer is not monolithic, but maybe we, sometimes we have to treat the, the market as, as monolithic. How do we engage the, the, the folks who actually will end up buying products that are made in Canada or in the United States or in Mexico or somewhere else? Um, this seems like one of the most challenging places. It also seems like one of the places where we might identify solutions relatively early on. It's funny that you're even talking about the consumer yesterday. Well, Tony and I are spending a lot of time talking to a lot of people lately, actually, uh, about this topic. But we were saying yesterday that we think that part of our work may be having to poll public opinion because people do talk with their feet. And we were talking yesterday about ethanol and how, you know, the ethanol answer and adding it to our, to our fuel, it was going to be the answer for what farmers could do. They could grow corn for ethanol. And then 
over time, we kind of see the ugly underbelly of that because there's some impact on the environment of what we're doing with the corn instead of using it for feed. Uh, we're using it for fuel. But then there's the benefit of it in that it's better for our gas and our, and our outcomes in terms of uh, CO2 emissions. So if we look just at that, the public should love the fact that we're adding ethanol to fuel. If you watch the consumer behavior when they show up at the tank and nobody's looking, they always touch the button of the lowest cost fuel. So you have options to pay more for better fuel, even cleaner for the environment, but they rarely tap that button because ultimately price trumps their view. So would a public opinion actually give us what the consumers are prepared to do? Or are they going to give you the answer of what they think you want to hear? Because we all want to say that we're going to be really good for the environment, you know, like, you know, but ultimately, do they bother taking the labels off the cans before they toss them in the recycle bin? Uh, you know, because no one sees that activity. So we got to find out what are people prepared to pay and how is their behavior prepared to change if, in fact, it's a more expensive solution. Um, and I'm not sure the public is ready for, for that. Uh, Tony, what do you think on that? Yeah, well, I always used to say uh, when I was in politics, uh, it was the, uh, the old case of world peace versus the chocolate bar. You'd, you'd get a person into a, an enclosed room. Nobody's watching. Table A has world peace. Table two has the chocolate bar. Guess which one they choose. Uh, but that's very cynical, and I'm not a cynical person. So uh, I just I just use it for il illustration purposes uh, as to the dilemma. Yeah, it's gonna. We we do have to do more work on this. To be honest with you, Brendan, uh, I don't have any ready-made solution because I, I agree with Sandra. There's a there is a pent-up opinion on some of this stuff. Whether it plays out in the marketplace, different story. My my own view. Uh, my own personal view is no one's going to thank government or industry if we're we move along. You know, the consumer is there when it comes to having more environmental solutions to get us to net zero, which is now the goal. Everyone's on board. They want that to happen. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, there's no jobs in Canada for that. I, I, I don't think anybody's going to thank politicians or business people if that's the way it turns out because Canadians look at what we have bountiful resources smart people we have mo the best trained people in the world uh you know we're we're ideally placed uh, you know situationally geographically Brendan I know you're an expert on geography and economics uh, you couldn't you couldn't buy a better position than Canada being you know, close to proximate to the United States, and yet we have all these ties to Europe and Asia. Uh, and then uh, the next big uh, wave of it, the next revolution uh, is uh, is the green revolution, and then Canada's nowhere. I mean, I, people would say that doesn't make sense. How did we miss that opportunity? Uh, so I think there is going to be a pent up demand for Canada to find solutions with supply chain, you know, and I've, I've kind of made this point that supply chain, no offense to Brendan, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, no, <laughs> you know, it used to be some nerdy guys with pocket protectors uh, worrying about supply chains, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, I don't think that's the case anymore. I can't tell you how many times supply chain comes up. I was on a, I was on a webinar earlier this week on procurement, and it was literally a, a webinar about supply chain. Yes, it was, the topic was procurement, but guess what everybody was talking about? So, yeah, I, I think that there's uh, actually uh, uh, you have to go where the puck is supposed to go uh, rather than where it is right now. And I think uh, people are expecting uh, our corporate leadership and our political leadership to understand that and to get us there. Yeah, and you know, I don't think people won't suffer fools, boy. If they see, if they think that you knew something and you didn't plan for that, you know, bad on you kind of thing. So I do think that some of the discussions Tony and I have had, we had a great conversation with Dr. Ann Snowden, who's a longtime researcher in the area of, of medical, uh, but very much into medical supply chain. So we had a ton to talk about. And what was interesting is that they already see 
uh, what they can predict we're going to have as issues. Now, if that actually that data actually exists, if that's believable, if that's actually true, uh, we have a responsibility to put the right group of people together to start planning for that. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it's we need to be more creative about what the solution will be and not wait for, for us to just be scrambling. Because to be honest, the whole world was caught off guard with this pandemic. There's no one country that did it much better than others. Um, there were some that had the benefit of sort of ordering people into a behavior uh, that got there quicker. But, you know, this caught everybody by surprise. So I think we can learn from it uh, uh, and take advantage of that and say, okay, now we're going to be creative because, like I said, no one planned for a computer chip that would ever, um, you know, come to be shutting down whole assembly lines and therefore their entire supply chain. But that's what we're living with right now in Windsor, Ontario. And it's shocking to me. Uh, this isn't an easy solution. That is a multi-billion dollar investment to build a plant to make this stuff. So government just can't snap its fingers and say, oh, I guess we'll have one of those and the next week it appears. Um, so those solutions are long in the making, uh, but you know, you've got to start somewhere. So I I'm excited. And I actually think, uh, Dr. Sweeney, that you're going to enjoy your participation when we start looking out for our expert tables on these, uh, on these solutions. Uh, because I think Tony and I both agree that we can do this. We've got really smart people that we can call upon this data collection. And I hope there's a way on this podcast. Can you post these links to our survey so everybody who's watching might see it and then send it to their friends that they know are in the business with a supply chain uh, feed into this data collection uh, the, the richer the data the better we're going to be at our finding the solution and then being able to populate that in the right place uh, so you know we're delighted that you're so interested because obviously you you've seen this You've seen this movie for a long time, and now you see some of us coming along and realizing we better get more involved in this, uh, in the solution. Nick's been watching it so much, it's turning his beard a little, a couple gray hairs in there, right? So, <laughs> That's why. So Plus Nick, you didn't ones. want to tell anybody that we used to work together at Queen's Park now. This is, you know, yeah, we might as well. You in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, no, we might as well. I've, I've actually, yeah, so Sandra. I like to think that was the genesis of your admiration and amour for the manufacturing sector. That's oh, coming out of our office. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I don't think there's anyone on the other side of that argument. Um, actually, you know, Sandra, I do want to uh, quickly go back to, uh, to our time at this ministry, because I remember I, I may have showed up late in the mandate, but I remember that at the time, Asimo, the robot. Oh yes. Came to visit. Yeah. It took me four years to get that guy to show up at Queen's park. Was now I wish I what was knew. What's, what's this uh, robot? You know what? He's somewhere on my shelf. I got a little miniature on the <laughs> shelf somewhere in here. So while Sandra looks for the, the miniature. Um, he's only the one he's this big on my shop. I want to know the robot Honda story. built a robot. Yeah. And like I before long before I actually, I met Asimo in Japan when I was there and said to them on the spot, you need to bring him to Queens park four years later. Thankfully I was in that ministry for a long time, like six years. And fortunately I was still around and we actually had to, what I didn't know is that everywhere he travels, it's about a $60,000 investment just for the, the trick. Cause he comes with two trailers, then they need the handlers and it's the robot that walks himself up the stairs. And he, you know, they were developing actually largely for healthcare services for the elderly in Asia. Right. That was their, their purpose. But they use the technology that they develop for Asimo, and then they put it in multiple products across uh, Honda. <laughs> were you part of the Sandra? Were you part of the Toyota plant opening? I was. In fact, Australia? I was there to paint the Daruma doll because that's part of the tradition. Um, when they when we put the first shovel in the ground, it was literally my second day on the job in that ministry. And Ray Tange called at the time and he said, oh my God, I know you're brand new, but you have to be here for this. So we had already done the large announcement with, with uh, Joe Cordiano and Dalton McGinty did the, when we landed it, right. which was probably started in discussion, could well have started under your government. Anyway, we finally landed it. When we first became a government, we launched the auto fund. So we actually had money that we were 
incentivizing these companies to come. And uh, the Woodstock plant was that first one. So I got to paint the eye and their tradition is for good luck. You, you start the construction with one eye. And then when you're done, you paint the other eye. So fortunately I got to paint both eyes. <laughs> okay. Cause I was there for that opening. This is a, this is a tangent uh, uh-huh. uh, for, for the benefit of your listeners. Uh, this is yeah. a little bit off topic, but it, the ro- robot thing reminded me. And uh, I was there to open the plant with uh, Premier McGinty and uh, Prime Minister Harper was supposed to be there as well. But it was the very day that we had the constitutional crisis of uh, of whether the coalition government was going to take over from the minority government of Harper. And Stefan Dion was trying to build that coalition. Remember I that? Do. And uh, Harper had to go to the governor general and ask for prorogation. And uh, the governor general had him sit on his heels for three hours in the waiting room uh, while she discussed it with her constitutional advisors. So he, he canceled out of the opening. And so I was, I was going anyway as minister of industry and, and uh, representing uh, the government of Canada and, and Dalton McGinty was there. So two stories out of that Dalton McGinty and I, uh, he's the premier were driving around in a golf cart inside the plant. (laughs) And there were all these rumors flying about this coalition government and how Jack Layton was tapped to replace me as minister of industry <laughs> under this coalition government. So I said, premier, I, I think I'm gonna, about to be replaced by, uh, by, uh, by Jack Layton. And he looked at me in very dry sense of humor and said, Tony, I've never said this before, but you're looking better and better every day. <laughs> so we had this little bit of a moment. So we get to the, the front of the plant. There's like 1200 workers behind us. And uh, they, they have a robot on stage. Uh, and they are doing with the robot that puts a trumpet up to its robot lips and trumpets out, Oh, Canada. So I'm listening, and I'm going to be the first speaker on behalf of the prime minister after this robot does Oh, Canada. Uh, and so I get, I'm, I'm next on stage and this was the primary chance for me. It would be perfectly obvious for me to say this but i'm representing the prime minister and so my one chance of saying domo origato mr roberto <laughs> was left on the on the cutting room floor i couldn't say it because i was representing the prime minister but i so wanted to say it after the robot had done that it's like true wow. story. it's like you're watching the pitch go by you know it's not going to be a strike but you know you could have hit it but you gotta <laughs> let it go by oh yeah <laughs> gotta let it go by baby yeah oh. exactly I feel for you. That, That's okay. a funny story, Tony. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's oh. good. Well, all, all you have after politics is a bunch That's of good right. stories. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you know what? I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I have Tony and Sandra in front of me, and I'm actually going to repurpose a question that we asked on a previous podcast, and we're still trying to, we're struggling to find an answer. What, and I'm going to drill right into Ontario here. What, according to the two of you, is Ontario's competitive advantage? Sandra, why don't you go first this time? Yeah, I will. Uh, and I probably learned this. I think I saw it change in my in my tenure there as minister, and it's only becoming more so. And it's probably our university system in Ontario. Um, we've got some really, really great groups within, you know, whether it's University of Windsor, focus on manufacturing research, McMaster, U of T. I shouldn't have even gone down the road of naming them because we've got so many. Um, but our AI capability, when you see what is happening in AI and, you know, vector or whatever the groups are, uh, CDL, all of those were generated through our universities. So even though certainly government funded, yes, but the, 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 the intelligentsia behind this are people who've come from our universities because they are just really high end. So it's made the links, you know, when I think of, um, a guy named Jimmy Chong, uh, Dr. Jimmy Chong. He is from Ford, but he spends a lot of his time at the University of Windsor with our engineering department and he brings students right along with him in their problem solving for Ford, which then goes into Ford Global, right? So we have this opportunity to have young people literally tied at the hip with industry And I don't know that that happens as well as that happens in Ontario. So our long-term strategy for how do we keep 
innovation happening in Ontario in this sector, it is that link that our universities are giving, giving our future workforce, which is going to be high end. We're never going to go back to the just basic metal bending like we did in the 70s. So it's going to be at that high innovated le- innovation level. I hope so. Um, and it's our so. students coming out of our system that are going to be those leaders. Our challenge will be, can our industry provide them with the positions after we've developed them to that extent. And I worry about that. Uh, That's why we have, our businesses have to stay on the cutting edge. So our very, very bright graduates actually can stay here. Um, And and I do, I worry about that a lot. Anyway, that's my answer. Yeah. My answer is very similar to that. Uh, I, I would have said the people of Ontario are, our competitive advantage that uh, we have uh, extremely well-educated, uh, uh, very dynamic people where uh, our demographics uh, trend younger, which is great. Uh, and uh, yet our, our uh, older demographic have a lot of skills and experience that, that can be put to good use. And then of course, we welcome people from all over the world. And uh, we, we have, you know, 160 languages spoken or more. And uh, we have uh, bright, bright, bright people or sons of people or daughters of people uh, who are uh, able to access our, our education system. And, and that gives us an advantage. Uh, clearly, we have a different, different culture than the America. You know, in America, there's more of the uh, sink or swim kind of culture, which does breed success as well. Uh, but also failure. Uh, here in Ontario, we're more averse to failure, which can be an advantage or a disadvantage, uh, but it's different. And at the same time, we have people who find their way to Ontario who can be motivated uh, by uh, the collaboration, the collaborative aspect of what we have here. So the reason I was asking that is because in a previous episode, which we actually just put out a while, uh, last week, we interviewed... Um, NGEN CEO Jason Myers. And you both seem to have uh, kind of echoed, Sandra, you in specific, you said, you know, we, we're not going to go back to what it was. Our competitive advantage has basically changed over, and you're absolutely right, it's changed over the years, what it is, what it was, and what it is, you know, what it was 20 years ago might not be what it is moving forward. So I'm, you know, in my novice academic opinion, I, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I think they're, yeah, I think people are our biggest strength. And I, but that the other point you mentioned too, which was, will the market be able to give them those jobs? Yeah, well, and you know, my worry when I was a minister, we were, I decided early on, we had a whole division um, that was following video gaming and that in digital gaming and that industry. We also, as a government, fund several colleges to graduate these students. And I would be sitting back and thinking, why are we spending all that money? We don't have anywhere to put them in Ontario. They keep leaving. Anyone who graduates leaves and moves to California. So I had this sort of come to Jesus moment with the bureaucrats in my ministry. I say, you know, we are not going to stop until we get the OE of digital gaming. And I went on this like mission. And at the time, this EA was a electronic arts was one of the big boys in that business. Um, In the end, Now, I will tell you that it took a long time. It also took a lot of money, which I was criticized for. But we landed Ubisoft from France, who already had a foothold in Quebec, and they opened a 500-plus employee group in Toronto. And it was the... Everything we ever did in our ministry, I know you're a comms expert, Nick, nothing garnered more international media for Canada for Ontario than Ubisoft selecting Toronto to open that plant. Uh, it was unbelievable. And let me just quickly say that? for the uninformed, Ubisoft is, is a huge, massive, massive so, win. Right. So to me, you know, everything to me is OE, the OE or the OEMs, right? So you get the OE like a Ubisoft, then you have all the game developers with a place to go with their product, with people that have to be hired to do that. And we were able to start that what we used to be just fledgling, we gave them a base. And to this day, they have continued to hire more and more people. And we've now created that ecosystem for digital gaming. That means all the money we're spending in education has a place to go. And that's why I think, 
I know businesses make business decisions, but governments can have a very real critical role in what's even going to exist in our backyard. And, you know, I don't do digital games. Like, I don't play video games. I've never even tried. So I don't have to understand it. All I know is that it is worldwide, it's multi-billion, and Canada, BC, Ontario, and now, uh, or Quebec, and now Ontario, we all have a big part to play in that whole industry. So that's how I know the work that Tony and I are doing here. I know there's positive that's going to come out of it. It will mean investment for some, reinvestment for others. It'll mean creative logistics. It could be better regulation. Uh, you know, I'm not going to guess at what our solutions are going to be, but I can tell you that it's likely going to be around those areas. Uh, people finding better ways to transport product, uh, replacement products that we can get on our own, on our own shores in some cases. Needless to say, I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, and we are too. Um, it, it's incredible how much, uh, how many parallels there were between what the two of you have said and some of our previous guests have also said. I could, I, I could keep talking to the both of you for quite some time, and I, I do want to quickly, I do want to ask for one anecdote. Um, I believe one of you was a minister, and the other one of you was a critic for that ministry at some point. Yeah, I was a minister of health and long-term care, and Sandra was. The I critic, was his yeah. favorite health critic. Let me say that. <laughs> and- and I will add that it was during the time of SARS. That kind of sounds like a movie, right? But yeah. actually, yeah. SARS hit Toronto. It was not the kind of global pandemic that we're facing today, for sure. But at that time, it was the first of its kind in our generation anyway. And Tony was the minister at that time. I was his faithful critic. And we're still talking today. So there's a, there's a few stories, a few, uh, uh, you don't want to burn any bridges because God knows you're going to end up working with the people <laughs> you were arguing with, right? So that's one story there, one last. Well, could I, could I, could I just make a case for political civility, uh, <laughs> something? And, Please. Uh, so I was minister of health. My wife, who is still my wife, uh, was a health lawyer in Toronto. And so we set up this ethical wall. We had it vetted by the ethics commissioner. She did not make a single call to the Ministry of Health, even though that was part of the basis of her, her practice. She didn't make a single call to the minister, Ministry of Health while I was minister, and, and so on and so forth. So anyway, uh, I don't know if you even remember this, Sandra, but you got a brown envelope from somebody uh, that uh, said, you know, there's all this uh, double dealing and Tony's wife has done this and they got a contract for that. And so Sandra went up to me. She came, she came to me. She said, look, I, I got this stuff. Uh, you know, what, what, what gives here? I said, Sandra, none of it's true. We, we set up an ethical wall. Uh, she does not have any contact with the Ministry of Health. And Sandra said, okay. <laughs> She just, no, no, that's what, you know, she, she, I don't know if this ever happens in politics anymore, but that's. Well, I'm not certain Patello. that it does now based on what I see. You're right. No, but that's what Sandra Pupatello did. Uh, and I, I'll never forget that because it was the, it was civil. It was not going for a jugular. Uh, first of all, there was no jugular, but it would have made my life and my wife's life miserable for a period of time. And she, she said, no, this is, this is bullshit. You know, I'll, I'll, I've got plenty of questions to ask you. I don't have to ask you about that. But at that so time, you- the thing that you did during SARS was, which often, which again, it was historic in our lifetime at that time, was he had the bureaucrats open their sessions to me as the critic. So we were having these daily briefings by bureaucrats getting facts and Tony opened the door and said, oh, yeah, Sandra, you come and sit in on these things. So I was getting the goods uh, every day. So I didn't have to ever surmise, gee, I wonder what's happening behind those walls. So back to civility and, and being nonpartisan when we are in a crisis, which if you guys will remember, you could shoot a cannon down Spadina Avenue and not a single car. And I remember that feeling of driving home to Windsor every Thursday night. I'd get in my car and I would Go because that's the way I would hit the gardener, right? And I would go down like I am. What am I seeing? This is unbelievable. It was just the most surreal, like out of a movie moment of total devastation, right? And it was our mini Canadian pandemic at the time, but largely affected Toronto. Uh, but anyway, Tony, you were very gracious as a minister at that time, and we both learned a lot about how 
health officials could not communicate with each other because they needed this piece of legislation to share that list with so-and-so. So it really was the forerunner and put us in a better place uh, to suffer this pandemic, frankly, um, because at that time, communication was a huge issue in how we could get info quickly uh, to all of our health partners in our system. But and it was a great experience, but a couple of good lessons there. Uh, you know, you want to be a crass oppositionist when it's useful, but not all the time. Uh, you need to be human. And then the second is you don't burn any bridges because these people come back into your lives, you know? <laughs> Apparently. Anyway, and yes, and you have a lovely wife to boot. So there you go. And Golding, <laughs> she's go. lovely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank well, you. For, so for both of you, I want to be cognizant of time. I am looking at the clock and we are, we've used up most of the hour. Um, I could very easily keep talking. Brendan, do you have any additional questions? I'm, I'm, you, I'm. My main question is um, we're excited to dive into this with you. When are you going to put us to work? Good question. Well, again, we want to get our information baseline sorted out uh, so that we uh, we come at this with a, a rich vein of uh, data. And uh, so uh, and we're in the process of doing that right now. But so it'll be soon. We are uh, we are standing by. We're at the ready. This is a great initiative. Um, and it's it's uh, uh, it's about time. Right on. There Thanks we go. for having us. It's great chatting with you. Thanks to everyone. Tony, Sandra, I will probably be bugging you again because I would like to have a follow-up conversation to this because this was great. Hopefully next time it can actually be in person. I'd, I'd like that very much. You know what? And we'd love to talk about that. Yeah, we'll get to talk about our data. So that'd be super. That would be great. Yeah, you know what? We could do a whole episode talking about data. That'd be great. Thank you so much, everyone. Hey, guys. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was Sandra Pupatello and Tony Clement of Reshoring Canada. If you'd like to learn more about how to support this initiative, please check them out on Twitter at Reshoring Canada or at their website, www.reshoringcanada.ca. Thanks again for listening to Making It in Ontario.